Welcome to the Living with Alzheimer's podcast. On this show, we share Ginger's journey and speak with subject matter experts about a variety of dementia-related topics. Ginger, a former English teacher and librarian, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2019. This diagnosis has changed her world and has given her a unique perspective on life and living. I'm Christoph, Ginger's son and full-time caregiver. I've created this podcast as a way to share the best practices I'm learning about caring for a person with dementia. Along the way, we'll document my mother's journey through her unique storytelling. You can subscribe to the Living with Alzheimer's podcast and find all the resources we discuss at lwalz.com. In this episode, I interview Dr. Logan DeBose. Logan is the co-founding director of Olera, an organization supported by the National Institute on Aging. We discuss how Olera can serve as a resource for families who are caring for an elderly relative who may also be living with dementia. We also talk about how senior care providers can utilize Olera to connect with families looking for the services they provide. You can learn more about Olera and Dr. DeBose at O-L-E-R-A dot C-A-R-E. Welcome, Dr. DeBose. I really appreciate you joining uh, here with the Living with Alzheimer's podcast, uh, and I am looking forward to hearing about you and uh, Olera and hopefully there are some things in here that are of uh, value to the listeners who are, you know, I think always thinking about uh, their families, the people that are uh, living in their family that have dementia or are just struggling um, in the, you know, in their elder years and need care. Um, And so, you know, Living with Alzheimer's podcast is all about uh, connecting people with resources uh, that are value to them uh, it, as they uh, take care of those family members. So if you could just introduce yourself and let listeners uh, know who you are and what prompted you to come into medicine, and you know, I'd, I'd love to hear more. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me on to this podcast. Um, my name is Logan Dubos. Um, please feel free to call me Logan. Um, I graduated resident or uh, medical school uh, about two years ago now, and so I'm into my residency program as an internal medicine physician, um, which has shown me some of the um, some of the some of the frankly more terrible more terrible situations that people can find themselves in. This is especially true of individuals with disabilities, and especially true of individuals with dementia. Um, and so some of the things that I've, I saw during my medical training so far um, has prompted me to be very passionate about resources and support to keep people out of the hospital, mm-hmm. to keep individuals with disabilities safe and healthy at home. Um, some of the things that, that uh, physicians and nurses and um, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, all healthcare professionals um, agree on is that we want to keep individuals safe and healthy outside of the hospital. I think every patient agrees with that as well. So that's my main motivation for being on this podcast for um, co-founding Olera, 
um, for working with the National Institute on Aging to build Olera um, and scale it to help people find resources is because um, the hospital isn't a place to be if, if, if we can help it. And so that's what I want to do. Um, so that's that's a little bit about my background and, and where I'm from. I'm happy to get into it. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about things and Olera and such. Um, right. But hopefully that answers your first question there. For self. It does. Um, so, you know, staying out of the hospital is um, it, it, very important. And I appreciate that more now than ever, uh, having been to the hospital with my mom a few times. Uh, the first couple of times that we went, it was an ER situation where something was clearly not right. And uh, mm. both of those ended up being uh, just, you know, a flaring UTI. You know, the urinary tract infection is a really common thing with elderly. And um, any infection, especially UTIs, because they're so common, can drive the uh, symptoms of dementia um, very rapidly into, you know, additional confusion, uh, loss of balance, you know, all, all these kinds of things that... When I first experienced that with my mom, uh, and it was an ER situation, I thought it was Alzheimer's just advancing really quickly. Uh, and, you know, the people around me who knew more than I did, uh, you know, were saying, I don't think so, because Alzheimer's doesn't move at that pace. What you've described is very quick. Something else might be going on. And so, you know, we'd get into a situation where there we were in the ER and getting some evaluation and finding, a, you know, what the issue was that was driving it. The last time was actually very recent and delayed our conversation, actually. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, we spent a week in the hospital this time, and it was a very obscure thing. Uh, my mom's calcium levels had uh, gone way high, um, and if you look at the side effect of uh, hypercalcemia, uh, you know, that high calcium level, it's all the things she was experiencing. Nausea, uh, loss of balance, extreme confusion, lethargy, um, you know, and again, I was like looking around going, this is not right. What is going on? And, you know, we went down the hole. Is it a UTI? Uh, she has hearing aids and has had some ear infection problems in the past. Is it an ear infection? We had the balance thing, you know, is it an ear infection? And we're ruling all these things out and she's getting worse and worse. And, you know, finally, um, you know, I <laughs> slid in miraculously to see the neurologist who looked at all of her stuff and said, you know, I, let's get some labs drawn. And uh, that afternoon, you know, I got to talk to her. She reviewed everything. We got the labs drawn. And at about 1130 that night, I got a phone call, uh, you know, saying, get her in now. Her calcium levels are dangerously high, which I never expected anything like that. And I'm so glad that there was a doctor on her team of caregivers uh, who was able to you know, discern what tests were needed uh, because it probably saved her life. Had that hypercalcemia continued, it could very well have started shutting down organs and, you know, led to something far more serious. Uh, and so, you know, I really felt lucky in that situation because I had an established, uh, you know, group of caregivers uh, for my mom who and that team, you know, communicates with each other very well. And so it's been the urologist and the neurologist and the primary care physician all, uh, you know, working together um, that have, you know, helped keep her comfortable and out of the hospital. 
Um, so, so that's great. What, what you didn't answer, I was curious about the more of your backstory. What led you into medicine in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I'll just, uh, I'll absolutely answer that question. I, that's one of my favorite questions. Um, so I'd love to answer that. I will highlight something that you said that I think is very important, um, that I've noticed. You said the word care team, mm-hmm. you know, and as the caregiver, as the primary caregiver, it really, I think, could be thought of, thought as the quarterback of the care team, essentially. Um, spe- you mentioned at least four different specialists in that story, yep. at least four different specialists. There's a hospital involved, and we didn't even get into the post-discharge care Correct. team. Yep. It means to receive the patient in a post-acute care transition. Um, it is a care team, and I just want to point that out because... I encourage individuals to, you know, be realistic with the role when you're first assuming it. Mm-hmm. You will feel like a quarterback of a huge team, um, and that team will make all the difference. Um, if you have those established resources, these individuals that are specialized, to go to when you have a simple question or maybe a very complex question, but you have a team to go to. And so I just wanted to point that out, and um, I'm happy to answer some medicine for me, it was not something that I knew I wanted to do when I when I was growing up. Um, it was something that um, I found a lot of meaning in when I discovered what some of my interests and talents were. As I was getting out of high school, I decided I realized that I had a huge interest in operations. Believe it or not, okay. hence where I went for that MBA as well. Um, large, complex administrative systems don't sound fun no. to many, but nope. to me, I actually. <laughs> I, thought, I, I find it very interesting to see how the healthcare system, for example, these care teams that we're talking about, who are all the players, how are they operating, what's the streamlined process in which communication is occurring. Um, ironically, that led me to medicine, believe it or not, because medicine was one of these huge, big systems. And one of my interests was how can I contribute to streamlining this system? How can I learn how to practice the medicine? as a way to see the whole picture because the doctor truly is kind of the quarterback of the team per se for a given patient um, while they're in the hospital or maybe in a clinic visit at the time. Um, so they see the whole system as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what I was, um, was, was interested in doing with, and then, then of course, you know, really deep down service is what I believe to be the most rewarding thing that we can do with our time, you know, real philosophical here. Um, And so I wanted to devote, you know, my time and energy, my interests, my talents. Um, You know, not everybody can wants to sit down and read all the things you need to do to get into med school and go through med school and do all of that. I didn't mind those things. I enjoyed those things. So I thought this was the best way I could serve. I have this huge system that's not perfect called the medical system. And uh, now at this point in my career, I've learned um, one angle of that from the physician, and that's going to allow me to help hopefully be able to help, you know, streamline some of these operations. And that gets into a little bit of what Olera, um, the vision for Olera could be. Right. And and so you mentioned your MBA, and, and I am definitely curious about that because when I saw that you uh, had your master of business administration, um, I was surprised uh, given that you you worked on getting that while you were also uh, working on your, uh, you know, medicine degree. And that sounds like a heavy load. So you must have been highly motivated. 
and you mentioned operations. I assume that's in there someplace. Something motivated you to do all of that. So can you tell mm -hmm. me more about why you mixed the MBA with the MD? Absolutely. Um, both types of training, when you compare them, um, are very team-focused, very team-based practice. As a physician, you're working with many colleagues and specialists, as your story showed, um, together to treat a patient. As an MBA or as a business leader or somebody in an organization, as a leader, you're working with your colleagues to accomplish projects, you know. Each project, I think of each patient as a little project that I'm working on, right. you know, that day. And the same thing with business. And so the MBA allowed me to really hone skills on how do we identify a problem, come up with an approach, and organize a team around that. Hold accountability. And so you think, um, you know, you think the MBA, it's all about money and dollar figures. It's really not. It's all about working with teams to accomplish goals mm -hmm. and projects. It's a different type of work than treating a patient. It's working on a six-week project to improve um, UTI detection rates in the ER. Right. That's a that's a project that, that I'd want to work on. It's a research project, for example, and managing a research team to um, identify aid programs and it, interventions that connect people to aid programs that decrease costs for individuals. That's a quality improvement. That's a research. That's not a business you'd think of at first, but it's a operation that business principles apply to in taking calls, processing calls. How do we deliver quality information? How do we quality control the whole system? The MBA, um, provided me a fundamental training in, in leadership and operations um, that I just didn't have before and unfortunately isn't available in med school because you're so busy learning how to treat patients. You don't always think about the best practices for operating a team. Um, and we can't accomplish big goals without a team. Right. You just can't do it on your own. I, and that was my big motivation. I can't stress that anymore. I was in the hospital so many times with my father who is no longer with us, but, um, you know, he just had one medical issue after another. And, uh, because he took a blood thinner outpatient surgeries became, you know, really difficult for recovery and often mm -hmm. landed back in the hospital and then in rehab and all that. And if there was any one thing that I wished for as his advocate through that whole process, was that the professionals would work together more closely. Um, you know, when I first met a hospitalist and their job was to coordinate the team, I was like, oh, finally, somebody that's centralizing the information so I'm not getting this piecemeal from this person who walked into the room and followed by this other person whose philosophy is different and they're walking into the room now and steering in a different direction. I mean, when the hospitalist was in control of and managing all of that, that made a whole lot more sense operationally, I'm sure. But for me, the end user who was in the hospital trying to understand, you know, what was happening with my dad, what the options were, you know, what we had to choose, uh, you know, in that whole process, uh, you know, that was important to have a centralized uh, point of information that was uh, you know, assembled from all these variety of philosophies that professionals are going to have. You know, somebody's going to be more cautious. Somebody's going to be more, 
uh, wanting to, you know, really scrub down into the details and, and look at all the uh, nitty gritty and somebody else is going to want to look at high level and move on. So um, the, the hospitalist really was a great answer from my perspective as, you know, a patient advocate at that time for my dad. Um, and so the things you speak of making sure that the team is running efficiently is really important. And this last time that we were in the hospital for a week with my mom, uh, the resident on the team, the, the key resident that was spending most of the time with us was just an awesome communicator and, um, would ensure that, you know, he was letting us know what all he was looking into, what his attending physician was uh, you know, thinking, you know, that was driving the overall direction. And, you know, it was, it was a, it was a good, uh, experience, uh, again, as a, uh, advocate for my mom, uh, in that particular situation. So I really appreciate when, you know, doctors are interested in the organization as well as their profession of diagnosing and, you know, presenting options for, you know, solving a medical issue. I'm so glad you had that experience. It's it, it means a lot to me actually to hear how much the hospitalist means to you because that's actually the career path that I'm choosing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not choosing to specialize, and so and the reason for that is because I as well appreciate that service that the hospitalist can provide to centralize information. On the outpatient, the primary care bo- uh, doctor right. serves that role. Um, but I will say, as I, I'm so glad to hear your good experience. Um, the reason is that I'm so glad to hear is because often that's not the experience. Right. Yep. Too often, in my opinion. Yeah, and, unfortunately. and this time we didn't have um, this most recent one. And it was same same hospital organization uh, that my uh, dad, you know, had his, his uh, care through. Um, and in his case, that would have been bef- pre-pandemic, um, you know, the person who came in, was very specifically labeled hospitalist. Um, Hmm. And I think maybe because he had more things going on because he had some heart issues and there were some lung things going on that they didn't know what was going, uh, happening. And he was a cancer survivor, um, the Hmm. cancer that returned the third time that finally, um, you know, ended his life. But, um, I, I think maybe because they had that many, uh, specialists involved, um, you know, that, uh, the hospitalist was really necessary. Perhaps that was not the case. And I mean, the communication was still great this past time. There, were, there just didn't happen to be anybody with the title hospitalist uh, in it. that particular case. So, well, I will, I will comment um, for anybody listening. You know, just one jargon or this complicated word that really isn't that complicated. There's. If you're in, if you find yourself in the hospital and you're confused and you don't know what's going on because multiple doctors or nurses have told you multiple things, the key word is actually to talk to your quote primary doctor okay. on the service. Primary doctor. Now that will typically mean a hospitalist. Typically, hospitalists are the primary doctors, but those two terms can be confusing. Mm-hmm. And so, if if you're finding yourself confused in a hospital stay as a caretaker, as a as a care recipient. Asking to talk with your primary doctor will signal that the, the physician who is responsible for quarterbacking all of the specialists and is at the end of the day, the physician entering orders into the computer off of recommendations from the specialist. That mechanism requires that physician to be your go-to uh, big picture 
resource Good. while you're in the hospital. So that, that's that's a tip there that maybe not a lot of people know until I, the word T is probably. Yeah, I wouldn't mm-hmm. have known that. Um, you know, when the hospitalist was introduced to me, it was a new concept, and I wouldn't have known to ask for it. And this past time, I felt like we were getting the right level of information, but I didn't think to say who was the primary uh, you know, physician in this particular case, because I felt like I was already getting, you know, that kind of really good communication. But yeah, right. If you're confused to ask for that, that's, that's a great inside tip. That's a, that's a wonderful aside here. So thank you. And many families might feel like they don't want to pull the doctor away from maybe something that they're doing, or just know that it is always, a, the doctor appreciates whenever you call. Yep to talk to him or her yep. um, because they want you to, to have all the explanations, but sometimes things, things don't always work out that way. So, yep. so it's always good to ask. You, you said a thing case. there. Um, so my dad uh, was an educator and he liked to communicate, but he did not want to bother people. And he complained to me on this first hospital stay that was significant. And I was being his advocate because there were clearly some other things going on with memory uh, at the time. And boy, he just was like, you ask too many questions. Stop bothering them. And I was mm-hmm. like, no, Dad, that's my job right now. My job is to know what's happening so that I can inform you. I can inform everybody else in the family. Here's what's going on. Here's what's being presented to us. And so I didn't have any problem asking questions and asking for time to discuss, you know, so that I could hear things more fully. Um, and, uh, you know, but there, there is a generation, uh, who just feel like that is not polite, you know, that's exactly right. And, um, the amount of times that I, I say, you don't need to apologize. Right. I'm happy to be here. Right. This is my job. I'm paid to be here. Yep. This is my job. I want to be here. You know, and so I, I always stress never, you know, doctors and nurses, they're there for you. You're never a bother. If you're in the hospital. Do not feel guilty about being in the We're here for you. That's the purpose. Right. Um, so and the caretakers. Yes, that's uh, just as important, if not more in, t- in certain cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's what I'd have to say about the hospital. I think there's a lot to say about what happens after the hospital. Right. Yep. It's a lot to say. And, and I'm not sure if that's where you wanted to talk on a little bit today well, as well. Well, I do. Um, and so a great aside, uh, w- the whole piece about in the hospital, because, again, I think um, as this podcast focuses on, it's getting information out there um, about processes, ways of thinking about things, where the resources are, how you can access those resources. That is what we're focused on. So all the things we just talked about, it's, I'm, you know, I think somebody's going to be able to use that as a, oh, well, that, yes, if I land in the hospital with, uh, you know, my parent or my grandparent or whatever, I know more now about how to get the help and information that I need. So, but yeah, let's, let's switch over to Olera. So, um, I know that you're the co-founder of Olera, which can be found at uh, www.olera.care, and that'll be in the description. The link will be there. Um, And that the vision for Olera was inspired by a book written by a surgeon who was, you know, shining some light on issues within elder care. And we've 
spoken about some of those. So what personal experiences other than that book prompted you to establish Olera and what is Olera's mission in the elder care space? Absolutely. Um, I think I'll start with the mission statement. Mm -hmm. So our mission statement is to decrease caregiver burden um, through better utilization of aid programs, resources, and care services. Okay, mention those three things again. uh, Aid, uh, underutilized aid programs, um, care services. Mm -hmm. um, Those are the main, those are the main two. So care services, resources, and aid programs. Resources is a bucket term that we use for any and everything that could be of use to a caretaker or an individual of somebody with disabilities, especially somebody with demanding conditions like dementia. Mm -hmm. So our job is very aligned with the mission statement of this podcast to try and make information widely available on especially underutilized services that that we found are often underutilized because people don't know about them, don't know how to access them. And I'll give you a prime example. Um, This statistic is striking every time I say it. There's $30 billion each year in underutilized financial aid program for the elderly. That's $30 billion that's left on the table because people don't know where to find it, don't know it exists, and don't have any help to apply for these or understand if they qualify for these services. And the prime example is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. $6 billion left on the table each year could be $100 in the back pocket of an elderly individual who needs assistance with food wow. um, each year. And that's $6 billion that's left on the table. And then there's supplemental social uh, income, which is like a, a, if you qualify for Medicaid in a lot of places, you can receive extra funding on top of Social Security. Um, when you talk to social workers in the hospital, they'll find that that's one of the things that they're doing very often. They're connecting people that already qualify to these programs that they're missing out on okay. and they're suffering because there's, there's not. And so one of the things that we're really focused on is providing good quality information on underutilized aid programs. How do you sign up? Where do you go? What are the programs? Would you qualify? Um, that is um, a big push for our educational content that's housed on the website. Um, and then there's care services, which I can speak about as well. But the website um, is created to connect people to these aid programs, to these care services, all in hopes to, after they get out of the hospital, they can find what they need. Right. And they don't have to come back to the hospital because their basic needs weren't met at home because they didn't have the financial aid program set up or the home care or the wound care or the, the, the nutrition assistance, Meals on Wheels, for example, mm-hmm. or a, a housekeeper if they are no longer able to do laundry and basic needs. Um, these are the things that we're interested in connecting people with. The website is a well-presented database that's easy to navigate of high-demand resources that we've identified could move the needle in health and quality of life for individuals with dementia with disabilities or their caretakers. That's our mission and goal of the website. And you mentioned caretakers in there. So um, how yes. does Alera specifically hope to assist caregivers themselves? Absolutely. Caretakers, we actually had um, a formal research study where we interviewed um, caretakers of so people with dementia, and we asked them, what are the most prominent challenges that you're facing? 
Um, and so we published this paper, and I'm happy to share it with you just recently, I think last month in the Journal of Internet Medical Research. And it outlines some of the biggest, most prominent issues that caretakers are facing, at least in our cohort of individuals. The first one was financial burden mm -hmm. and strain. Now, 40% of caregivers have to quit their jobs, at least the data shows, um, due to care needs and taking care at some point in the caregiver journey. So we found that this is often because affording assistance at home is too too costly, and so quitting the job actually makes the more sense for the individual. Um, so that's one of the biggest challenges. So how we're trying to help that is we're trying to connect people to these underutilized aid services, trying to get, first off, is there any benefits, discounts, waivers, programs that we, with our understanding of what exists, could qualify you for to save some save some costs. Then how can we look at your local area, assess any services that you need right now, for example, wound care mm -hmm. from a home health aid, for example, um, just light housekeeping or maybe some yard work. Um, how can we compare services for you and help you get pricing and build a package that makes sense and give you a sense of what your out-of-pocket costs might be? Mm -hmm. That is That is one of the biggest things we're trying to build into the website is ways to quickly do that. And when we reach the end of what we can accomplish technology wise, how can we route somebody to an expert who can help them understand these things like a social worker would almost. Right. And, and that's on the horizon too. We're looking into, into thinking about how can we involve social workers into providing direct interventions for individuals, but finances and affording care was one of the biggest challenges. And that's what we're doing to try and help right now. Um, navigating administrative and bureaucratic applications yep. to programs, um, that is a big barrier. And many people that are eligible for programs, like I said, don't know where to apply, don't know how, um, and they need somebody to help them. So providing step-by-step -step instructions that are more clear than what exists um, is our first step at that. First off, matching somebody with program after they answer a few questions on the website we can match you with um, different care services and aid programs then provide step-by-step -step instructions contact support numbers mm -hmm. um, that's where we're starting but we'd like to do even more than that and that's where the social worker intervention might come in here soon we're working on that actively right now so these are the two main the third main challenge is mental health and uh, support group resources that we found um, a lack of peer-to-peer -peer mentorship, a lack of um, emotional support um, through counseling, for example, but also through things like a caregiver support group. There were not a lot of information online. People weren't able to find support groups um, easily. Some could, but many didn't know, and they didn't know if um, there were any virtual ones available. So we're trying to, um, for the, and I'm not sure if there's any other websites that necessarily do this, we're trying to source every existing caregiver support group for somebody with disabilities or dementia and put that on our website so you can type in a zip code and find a support group. Um, and then we're also, I think, and we've done some of this in the past and we're about to start it back up again. We're gonna start our own virtual support group as well okay. um, that we call the Healthy Aging Community. And so I can definitely send you that information. Um, we have a Facebook page that we're going to release the first um, session on here soon. Okay. So maybe the best way to connect with that would be to like our Facebook page um, and join the website. And we'll be 
releasing some. So those are the three big things. And there's many more things that we found in our study. And those findings directly informed the development of this first version of the website that we have right now. Mm -hmm. And so we, we, we like to think that it's very caregiver centric design because we involved caregivers directly in the content that they'd like to see on the website, the functionality that they'd like to see on the website. And so now actively we're recruiting for 300 users. Um, so the first 300 users that qualify for our eligibility criteria to formally test the website by using it yep. and giving us feedback with surveys on, on, on how it functioned and how useful it was. Now you don't have to join the study. You can use the website. It's available right now. Regardless. Yeah. Um, okay. You can use it, but certain individuals, if you're very interested, um, there's a question on intake on the website where you can express your interest in being um, screened for the study and we can enroll you. It's a $50 stipend as well um, to use the website over four weeks. Okay. So we're really excited about that um, as well. Nice. So that's all at alera.care. All at alera.care. Yeah. Um, it's not alera.care.com. It's alera.care. Um, yep. so there you go. So, um, you know, I want to, stress this whole thing about caregiver support again because I have often felt like I'm inventing things on my own, uh, finding the resources on my own, uh, and there's a certain level of, you know, just being overwhelmed with all the things because I still have to take care of those daily tasks. And as a caregiver for someone with dementia, the disease doesn't quit, and so the need continues to shift. Uh, and a shift, unfortunately, in the direction of needing more assistance. And uh, so my time for myself um, is diminishing as my mom's capabilities are diminishing. And, uh, you know, finding a support group that is a good fit for me time-wise, uh, location-wise, I like virtual uh, personally because it's easier than trying to jump in the car and figure out who's going to cover for me while I'm gone from the house. I can just, you know, if I can jump on a Zoom uh, session, that's great. Um, and, you know, so that has been a struggle for me. I happen to have my own counselor and that's helpful, but I don't have a support group of other caregivers that fits into my schedule. There are a couple that are available that I've tried out, but they just, they just don't fit at the moment. Um, and so to know where other options are with a caregiver support groups, that would be really a big deal for me. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I look forward to testing that part of the website out. The other thing, I don't know if you have contemplated or if the research, um, you know, popped up anything around social uh, interaction, but my mom is a social mm. butterfly. I mean, her, she's not interested in sitting and drawing or doing puzzles. Um, you know, that's just not her thing, never has been playing a game, you know? So, I mean, there are, there are some, uh, resources available for somebody to come in and help with, you know, that kind of activation, but just to come and chat would be a yeah. huge resource, yeah. you know, for my mom, because that's how she's wired and that's where she still functions, you know? Yeah. And then I, I'm, I, I, I don't want to say too much about it because it's not ready to release yet, but we're really interested in trying to connect young individuals, yep. um, volunteers that are um, interested in interacting with individuals yep. with dementia um, for 
experience and for perpetual and personal experience, we're, we're very interested in creating some, some programs. Um, us, you know, just recently being in school and we were both, uh, my partner and I were both um, leaders of student organizations and such in the past, we see the huge need for volunteer opportunities and we see the great value that it could bring individuals like your mother, for example, um, and how great that can be intergenerational interaction. So um, I, 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 yeah, so uh, for right now, what we're trying to do is on our directory, we list, um, we tag people for, com uh, for compassion care is kind of the jargon term for um, a home care agency or a home care group that sends someone over to talk and to interact and have activities together. Um, but we're hoping to introduce volunteer programs and start to identify if not create these in certain areas um, where where you could find that as well um, for these very social butterfly individuals right. that need to be talking all the time and hanging out right. and um, don't just want to sit and watch TV. Yeah. Um, so the uh, one program that is in an episode uh, was a nursing program that uh, is between two universities uh, and uh, they are pairing nursing students with people with dementia just to have conversation. It's, you know, virtual, it's via Zoom. Um, but that gives those nursing students exposure uh, to the people, you know, that have dementia so that when they go into the field, you know, they have much more background and, and not, not just familiarity, but just a comfort level uh, with interacting yeah. with someone with dementia. So that that oh, that was a, that was an exciting effort you know in my mind that's very critical i i personally had an experience before i went to medical school as a technician in the hospital mm -hmm. and i would spend nights um being and i really don't like this term but the term is called being a sitter you're a sitter at the hospital for individuals who might have cognitive disabilities that cause them to get out of bed and maybe possibly harm themselves so i was a sitter and i would sit with individuals for 12 to 14 hours yep. um, that have conditions such as dementia. Um, and it is critical experience to spend this time being somebody who was young at the time and didn't have any direct experience yet with dementia. Um, it was absolutely critical and I, it was pivotal to be absolutely honest. Um, and some of my decisions later down the road, I think we are missing intergenerational relationships. Yep. Um, and that's critical to our society. Uh, we need to be able to interact. I I want to enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to speak to the sitter actually because the, I had my first experience with a sitter this past hospitalization wow. for my mom during that week. She started with a sitter, um, and it was interesting to me because you know she was in and out. She was not real alert because of all the issues that were going on and the side effects of that. You know the advanced confusion, the lethargy, you know, all these kinds of uh, things that were happening for her with that high calcium level. But when she would open her eyes in between all of the napping that she was doing there in the hospital as her body was trying to recover, um, you know, there would be a person sitting in the room uh, and, you know, they were taking care of other tasks, uh, you know, at the computer that they had with them, you know, that kind of thing. And so, you know, their time was utilized for other things while they were there. But when she was alert, uh, you know, there was a smiling face in the room ready to interact with her. It really <laughs> helped set her at ease. And I mean, it wasn't just to make sure she got out of, she didn't get out of bed because she wanted to and, or, 
she's you know just like nitpicking at things my mom uh it, you know doesn't like things that are out of place um that's mm. that's a, a a real uh focus for her you know in her state of dementia and uh you know so the iv in her arm just really bothered her because it was out of place what is this thing and she would pick at it and you know in the er she managed to pull it out which is not helpful to anything <laughs> you know so yeah. they finally got a sleeve on her over the iv lines and you know that helped but she'd pick at the sleeve you know and so the sitter just being there with a friendly smile uh ready to interact really helped calm her down and she stopped fiddling with all the things that you know w would have made her care more difficult uh for the team this makes me think of another um, really important tip that might sound like common sense, but in the hospital, this is more powerful than medicine we give. Um, it's called, well, in the hospital, they call it delirium precautions. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of this no. jargon, delirium precautions? And I don't necessarily think it's needed to get into the, like the definitions of what delirium versus dementia is, though they are different things. Okay. Delirium is more of a... Um, it onsets quickly. It's a confusion that occurs um, quickly, um, where dementia is a more long uh, process of, of memory loss. They sound similar, so they get. But delirium precautions are something that are often placed in on uh, in individuals that might be experiencing something like your mom was, which is confusion, a little disorientation. Right. Things aren't what they what they typically are, like an IV picking at things. This is all. So what delirium precautions are, believe it or not, it's not medicine. It's not any sort of procedure. It's inviting the family. It's calling the family to come in and spend time and sit next to the individual. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, that solves a lot of the time way better than any medicine that we could use. Just being there with the individual, that familiar voice, that familiar memory, maybe yep. song. Yep. Um, if you've ever heard of sundowning. Oh, for sure. We have an episode on sundowning and what it is, and my mom experiences it every day. We don't have medicines for that. Right. Though, of course, you can always sedate an individual, but we don't want to do that. Right. That's not good. What do we do? Delirium precautions. We call the family members to come in, and it's amazing mm -hmm. what it does. So if you ever feel like you're not wanted at the hospital or you'd be in the way or a bother to be there with your your loved one, that is the absolute opposite of the, the, when, when I'm rounding on a patient in the morning and I see the family there, that makes me happy. I feel that's almost better medicine than I could have given if at all. It probably is in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to share that as yeah, well. That's great. It made me think. That. Yeah. So I do see that Olera receives financial support from the National Institute on Aging. And yes. could you tell me about what that relationship is? What it, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, um, Olera is a research company at the, at the roots of it. We started as a research company. We want to work on big problems on the na nationwide level, local, state, whatever they might be, wherever it takes us, and we want to research and develop solutions mm -hmm. to these big problems. And my partner and I uh, are co-founders of this company, and we received our first our first break, you might say, our first big problem that we wanted to tackle was aging. We wanted to think, what could we do for aging? Mm -hmm. What could we do um, for the individuals that I see at the hospital, for example, 
that are suffering? What can we do? And so we settled on, let's create, what can we do as students? We were like, okay, well, we can create websites and we have good design intuition and we could probably market well. And um, we can, we have some expertise as well in engineering and medicine. Let's see if we can create a really good website and start there and see where that takes us. It just so happened at the same time that National Institute on Aging was very interested in personalized web web uh, web based care planning tools okay. for individuals um, caring for a loved one with dementia. It was it was almost too perfect timing. That's interesting. We we were like we are want to make a tool to help in the aging care space, and we have this experience personally with to help people with with disabilities. Me being in medicine, and I have some personal stories as well. I haven't told yet. And then this grant came along and this is exactly what we needed. And so we hustled. We were students at the time. We wrote for months. This this grant at the end of it ended up being about 180 pages wow. at the end of it of pure content, probably about 40, 45, you know, and then some fluff in between this. And we just worked. And that and what we wrote was really a research study mm -hmm. more than it is a business, more than it is anything. Now, it is a business. There's a commercialization plan and we're still working on that. Um, but the research is so exciting. And so what the study was is we're going to first, number one, I um, mean, this is what the National Institute on Aging funds us for. And so we're currently funded by them. Um, number one, we're going to talk to family caregivers and we're going to figure out, at least we're going to try and document in a standardized, systematic, scientific way what the prominent challenges are and what they might be looking for in a web-based care planning tool. That was phase one. Then we were going to build that care planning tool, which we did. And we're going to test that with individuals early on to make sure that it's on the right track. And we did that. Now, what you see in front of you is the second version. After that first feedback loop, we call it a build, measure, learn loop is what we call yep. it in the engineering terms. And so that's where we're at right now. And so that's what you can see in front of you. It's still a work in progress. So Houston, Texas is where we have the most resources mapped and we're building out from there um, city by city. Um, so you might find that maybe we're not in your city, but the educational materials that we have are relevant right. across the board. And so that's where we are right now. And the National Institute on Aging has us funded up into this um, second part of the research, which I invited everybody who's interested and, and might qualify who's caring for somebody with dementia to, to consider joining. Um, that'll be 300 individuals using this website. Right. Um, and we're focused in Texas and Houston, Texas, but if you're outside of that service area, you can also join. Um, and we can see if you can officially join the study or not. Um, but that's what the NIH is interested in is care planning, personalized care planning tools um, that connect people to resources. And so it was just a perfect match. And we actually just applied to another grant. We submitted it last month. We're very excited about this. Um, and I mentioned that though we have a web a web-based care planning tool and it's excellent there's we're still missing we're still missing something there's still people out there that don't access the internet easily mm -hmm. um they don't prefer the internet right they maybe need more of a a touch a human touch and so for those people we submitted a um, we submitted a new grant and we're working on trying to create a social work service okay they can reach out to individuals and talk to them on the phone and perform a social work intervention right which I believe to be some of the most important interventions that exist in healthcare today mm -hmm. in connecting people to resources. So that's what the NIA relationship is. They're our funder for research and development of this technology. Um, and they, they thought that our team 
would be the best to do it. And so they awarded us this contract um, that we're working on. Right. That's great. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've worked with Alzheimer's Association and um, there's like, you know, the whole interaction to discuss what's going on and they have, you know, people who then become almost like a case manager to help, you know, develop a plan. Um, and they have suggestions oftentimes for a service um, and, and they do have some resources, but it sounds like you're looking for something that's much more robust uh, in the service offerings and actually connecting you with them rather than an idea. Let's see if you can find something to help you with your you know, housekeeping needs or your, you know, yard needs, you know, if you have, you know, lawn care needs or mm -hmm. something along those lines. And, and, uh, you know, so I can really see where this, you know, website that Alara has would be of great benefit. And then yes, if you can add the ability to call in, uh, to have the conversation, I like having a conversation, you know, I mean, yes, Absolutely. I love the power that a website uh, can hand me, uh, but there are times where it's really the person who's, you know, conversing with me, thinking out loud that comes up with, you know, some of the better ideas, you know, in, in my experience. So, and, and that's why I'm interested in where AI fits into your model, because I noticed that artificial intelligence, um, is part of the platform for Olera. And, and so I'm, I'm curious with all the, you know, AI in the news and when it's good and mm -hmm. when it can be dangerous, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's, yeah, but, but here you are trying to use it as a tool. So, so speak to that where AI fits into this. I'd love to. And a lot of this is bleeding edge kind of theoretical. So I'm not going to make any claims that I can say for sure we can do. However, I will tell you what our current approach is going to be to attempting to utilize the power that artificial intelligence has now given us to process data. Uh -huh. And that's the key is processing data because in the elder care ecosystem right now, and we call it the elder care ecosystem because it's this fragmented conglomerate of home health care, hospitals, doctors, elder law attorneys. We call this the elder care ecosystem. The journey at which an individual takes through this ecosystem is complex and full of data, mm -hmm. full of data. You might not think about it as data, but any article that you read online, any conversation you have with a friend, all of this is data that's coming in and we're in processing. And it's very overwhelming and taxing and difficult for the working memory, especially in these emotional states. So artificial intelligence has now created the ability where we can, we can, we can teach a computer to understand the language. That's key. So when we're talking and I'm overwhelmed about where I'm going to find the money to afford an assisted living facility or a home care agency, I can speak now to a computer and it can understand what I said on a scale not previously done. Now, so the fear of AI taking over these conversations or being like too good at what it does maybe right. or something like that, um, that's actually um, just one of the benefits is that it can understand language. Um, Really where that comes into use is taking that language and using it to sift through huge amounts of data right? and then match things according to a model that we teach it. So how this gets real, like to the simplest I could say it is right now we have a huge database. We call it the Educational Materials and Caregiver Resources Database. It's got all the aid programs I've mentioned, information on them, data on them 
care services on the local, state, federal level, um, just pure education. We can even train it on parts of the entire internet. Okay. We can train it. We can feed it data. And it then, with the large language model that I was, this ability for the artificial intelligence to understand language, it can cross-reference what we input into the system with the database and optimize an output and then convert that to language to you. So this is the same thing we're doing right now. I'm giving you an input, you're doing processing, right. and then responding back to me with an output. Um, the computer will be able to do this, but our minds might only be able to process maybe 10 care services, maybe 20 care services aid programs that I know of or my partners know of. This computer can process 100,000 instantly mm -hmm. and then match you eligibility match, which is what we're hoping to do. You can think of it like we would like to do a mass eligibility screening where all of our users are immediately recommended any programs that they might be eligible for mm -hmm. on the state, local, and federal levels. That's a dream of ours. And that's how we're going to combat trying to help Americans reclaim all of this money that's being left on the table from aid programs being underutilized is use AI to help mass eligibility screen individuals with data processing capacities that were not possible previous. Right. Uh, so that's the best way I can. I hope that makes it, sense. Um, it's still theoretical, but we're working on it. Yeah, it is a little bit of the in one ear and out the other because I didn't process all of that. So because <laughs> I can't handle 100,000 pieces of information simultaneously. But um, yeah, I, I do get it, though. Um, it's the power of, you know, I mean, you're utilizing what computers are good at, which is to do a lot of processing very quickly and um, to hold on to um, all that information without fail uh, where my brain, you know, is going to forget stuff and, and forget to calculate in things. Uh, and I go, oh, right, I forgot about that part. You know, I mean, there's there's always that kind of thing, right? Oh, that, that would have been nice, but I don't qualify. It uh, would have been nice to know that before I spent all this time on it. You know, those kinds of things are the kinds of cycles that I, yeah. you know, I see myself going through and I'm sure others do as well. So I can imagine that um, if the AI platform is stood up and working effectively, that, that would really make things efficient uh, to, to, you know, connect uh, a person with the resources that they need for the scenario that they're, uh, you know, looking to, uh, you know, solve. Um, or, you know, take care of. I also noticed on your website that um, because, of course, you're trying to connect uh, an individual, a caregiver with resources, that you're also, uh, conversely, trying to connect care providers with the people that they can, you know, provide those services to. And so tell me, if, if there's a care provider listening, how do they enter into this mix and how do they... Um, you know, gain a relationship with Olera so that their services are part of what the AI is, you know, uh, trying to match people right. with. Absolutely. So we have a provider login and on this provider login, you can log in and make a profile for your service. And we've designed the login wizard, we call it, or the signup wizard for providers to be a way that we can take services from across multiple industries a yard service, a plumbing service to an assisted living or a memory care. How can we take all of these data points 
on what the service is, what it does, why it's useful to a caregiver. How can we streamline, streamline, centralize, and standardize that in a way that is adoptable and useful to caregivers in comparing and browsing and finding services for their needs? Mm -hmm. That's what we have tried to develop and are continuing to refine in our provider login. So for, for providers, how we can help you is we can help translate your service into the language that caregivers are using to, to make decisions. Um, pricing is the most important. Location is probably the second most important. Quality. He can give you a quality review and language that caregivers care about um, and, and, and use to, to, to increase self-efficacy, which is the science word that we measure in our testing for confidence in decision making. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're interested in. We're in, interested in creating quality real estate online, online real estate pages that actually move the needle in decision-making confidence for individuals. And we're scientifically tracking that and trying to refine it as we can. So for providers, if you ever feel that, you know, maybe I'm not the best at digital marketing, maybe I don't know how to connect with the user, or maybe I just want more real estate online. I want to be in this directory that many people are coming to. Um, we're your place. And so you can log on and you can make a free account. Um, it's completely free. Uh, um, and you can put your service on there. Um, and sometimes we even have pre-populated things, you know, so you're not starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. um, and then we bring, uh, and then the, from, from, like I've mentioned, there's a multitude of service providers um, and goods and products and services that people need in their caregiver journey um, and come across. And so um, we have specific pages for each type of service for each type of, or ability to, to adapt your page for your service. Um, and so that's what we're, that's what we're doing for providers. It's really great for small businesses um, that are just trying to kind of make a name in home care and um, in a certain area, for example, mm -hmm. it's great if you don't want to, um, if you don't have a lot of search engine optimization experience. SEO is what that's called. If you're worried about, being really low on the search list, um, when people look for home care in your area, having a profile on ours, we can kind of help, um, I guess, increase your your visibility online. Right. That would be the best way I could say. Okay. It. And mm -hmm. and I'm hearing small business is as welcome as some of the larger businesses. So an assisted living facility, yes, um, but also you know maybe even a dog walking service, you know because you know, people with dementia have pets and they, they need exercise. So even something like that would be eligible to be part of this. Um, right now we have six types of service providers, mm -hmm. um, that we have identified as the top service providers, um, that caregivers, um, are, have demand for. However, we are not limited okay. by any means. Our infrastructure can build. So if you, if you go to Olera and you see that maybe your service isn't a common one listed, um, I would encourage you to make a profile anyways, um, and put in the note, you know, whatever it is that you notice, like maybe I'm a yard service and I don't see a lot of yard services, put a note in there. I'll see it. Um, and I'll contact you and we'll establish a specific type. Um, and we can work together to do that. That's great. That's great. So what I guess I'm really interested in trying to bring this thing home um you are trying to connect people with the resources that could be helpful to them and the service providers with the people who need their services what can a just a private individual who has a need you know for their caregiving situation 
what can they expect when they come to Alera.care? Absolutely. So there will be two paths that you can take when you log on to Alera.care. It can be the self-guided path where you fill out, um, it's about eight questions. And those eight questions um, will allow you to not only make your user account, but to personalize your dashboard. We call it the Caregiver Relief Network dashboard. This dashboard has multiple different buckets that we put useful information and organize it into. Finding help at home, finding a senior living community or better living quarters, um, finding help affording care, finding help with caregivers uh, mental health and support. So we have these four buckets and you'll be able to work through these different um, components of the caregiver relief network dashboard. You'll be able to work through these components and find our own personal articles and educational videos on relevant topics curated specifically for you based on your questions. Mm -hmm. So we'll put those articles that we think are most relevant to you um, in your situation. In addition to that, care services and resources on the local, federal, and state level that might be of use to you um, pertaining to that topic. For example, finding um, help affording care. You might actually need an elder law attorney, believe it or not, okay, right. to work through Medicaid spend downs, yep. to work through getting the legal implications of getting you yourself paid through Medicaid, for example, as a caregiver. Right. You might need to afford care. You might actually need to talk to a lawyer who would have known that, right? Right. right. And so that bucket would explain that. And a caregiver who is identified as somebody who needs help affording care right now or is interested in getting themselves paid as a caregiver for their loved one, that's what, that would be your bucket for you. And we would put that there. And so in this way, you have a dashboard to at least start the conversation. Now, that's the self-guided path. There's also, we have a, during business hours, somebody on staff that you can call um, and we'll help walk you through all of this too. Okay. Now, they're not a licensed social worker. However, they are a senior care expert. A lot of times it's myself as well, staffing the line. And I'll help, help identify your needs, see what resources we have in your area or education I can provide you from there. And then um, do everything that we can to connect you to those resources. I've made calls for people sometimes. You know, we do we do what we need to. And it, when we get on the phone, it's more of a uh, we're going to do everything we can to try and holistically help your situation. Right. And then the the online self guided portion offers as much as we can offer without that human touch. So now that sounds right now. amazing. And so that person who got on there and did the you know, the self-guided path or they called during business hours, they're not paying anything for that? No, this is free. This is free, completely free. Um, now, it, we our goal is to always keep this free for caregivers. Caregivers, are it's so expensive to be a caregiver. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely outrageous. Um, so this is completely free service. This is free information. Um, we, we, we can't solve all the problems, but we sure can try. We can try. Right. Um, and we'll do everything we can and we'll do that for free. Um, and now how we, you might ask how we sustain a business. Well, the business right now is being funded through the research we're doing from the government, but we have plans to create a corporate partnership program. We're working really closely with some of our industry advisors to develop that program. So because that is our revenue strategy, this is a free service for caregivers. That's amazing and wonderful. So uh, it sounds like a no-risk deal for me to get on and, you know, find the resources that you can match me with. That's, yeah, I. that is definitely in line with what we're here for on the podcast. Great. So 
and uh, you could join our study too. I mean, you right. likely qualify. So um, that's what you'll see on the website right now. You'll see advertise. It'll say join and earn fifty dollars for for if you're eligible for our study because we are not only trying to provide this service right now in its current state. It's not perfect. We need your advice. We need your help. I'm not interested in making a website that's just on on the internet. Right. I'm interested in making a website that works. Yep. And so I need your help, um, Christoph. Actually, okay. you you individually okay. should should look into if you can join the study and um, let your friends know. Um, and I'll give you all the links you need for people to sign up um, if they're if they might be eligible. That's great. Um, so again, in the description of this episode, the links are there for listeners who are. Uh, interested in pursuing any of this and you know if you didn't take down the notes and spell things properly don't worry about it it's in the description Uh, Logan I really appreciate your time and I know we've gone a while so I want to respect your time and uh, wrap up but um, it just sounds like there's so much uh, going on that you are uh, quarterbacking just steal your word Um, and I'm you know I'm impressed Uh, I don't want your job um, <laughs> I, I, I do not want your daily schedule, whatever that looks like. Cause it sounds, uh, <laughs> uh, awful from my perspective, but, um, I really appreciate what you're doing and, and it sounds like Olera is offering some great things. So is there anything else you'd like to leave listeners with? I think we talked about it all. <laughs> I think, you know, grace, patience, with the process, um, you giving yourself grace and giving yourself patience. Mm. This is a very tough disease, the toughest disease. Yep. Uh, we will all in some way or another require a caregiver of some sort or be a caregiver at some point. This is a highly relevant problem and we don't talk about it as much. And I think that everybody should give themselves some advice. Grace and patience right. is key. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah. And it's hard because a lot of, caregivers are the people who find themselves naturally in a caregiver role are helpers and yeah. they tend to forget about themselves so exactly right that self-grace exactly. uh and patience with yourself as you're going through this journey with your loved one is a really big deal because you, you want to be able to sustain your ability to help absolutely right absolutely Logan, thanks again for your time. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you you so much for having me. Yes, and be well. I really appreciate it. All right, thanks. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living with Alzheimer's. Please visit the Living with Alzheimer's website at lwalz.com where you can subscribe to the show and find all the resources we discuss in podcast episodes. We'll see you next time on the Living with Alzheimer's podcast.